Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go, Mary, here we go. You're looking fine back there, Mary. Life's good. Kick that on. Here we go. This would be, uh, let's see, we're three in, right? So that would make it oculi, my eyes, my eyes, the third Sunday of Lent, the Lord. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son to sinful human beings, and you laid on him the grievous burden of the cross, that we might see and know the glory of your holy love. Grant that our faith in him may not be shaken by adversity or daunted by threat, but that we ever follow steadfastly the way that leads to perfect fellowship with him and so with you, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, how you doing? How's your Lent going? Everybody good? How's that fasting going? Working out for you? Cheating? Liar, liar, pants on fire? No, it's all fine. Actually, there's, a, there's an interesting tone to Lent in this place this year. It's, it's been a very... Uh, it's a very kind of happy tone, which is probably the best way. It's been a gentle, uh, there's sort of been a gentle, it's been a gentle discipline. This, and that, so that's been really, really good. Um, the people I've talked to about their Lents have been uh, circumspect, but, but happy. So I hope that's with you. If you're struggling with your, we talked about prayers, we talked about fasting. We're not going to talk about tithing because um, we did here. Yeah, okay. Let's see. Anybody? You can give my tithing speech just easily, right? When Jesus was picking numbers, Jesus picked. And when the Missouri Senate picked numbers, they pick. So we stink at picking numbers. Let Jesus pick numbers. Okay, we done? Okay, good. And then give some to the poor in the basket if you put some in the basket. Um, I won't go all the way to say, you know, at least not in public company on tape, that you have to give 10%. I will tell you that the church doesn't work for anything less. Uh, pretty, pretty clearly that's true, you know. If you give 2.7, you're going to have a church that's always poor and shutting down. It's like having a store where you never have the shelves completely full. It's like Target opening in Canada, for example, or just checking to see if you're paying attention, you know. Who would open half a Target store and think that would work? You think the Canadian? Oh, never mind. Uh, so, okay, so um, if you put somebody in the basket, we'll give it to people in Spain. Uh, we're trying to figure out a way to get Fred Gady there uh, to do a little pastoral work. I don't know if Val would have to go or not. She'd probably have some preschool thing to work about. I don't know. we we'll try to... I don't know what, when Val retires, we'll have to open a little preschool in her house so she has some place to go. <laughs> People talk to, we could get some puppets and she could talk to them. That would be great. <laughs> Human type puppet. People, sometimes people don't notice that they're not alive. Uh, try not to say anything to her. She's getting older, but we don't want to mention that, okay? So don't bother her with that. Just let her go. It's a nice retirement plan from the Senate, okay? Everybody good? How about Bukes going with the angry Jesus this morning? Holy cow. I know, but I, just, I don't know if you noticed there, in the middle of that prayer, it was all about divine love. So, you know, I once had a professor who said, if you say you'll never spank your kids, you'll spank them just enough. And if you say you'll never be angry, you'll be angry just enough. So it is very, very interesting, um, the things that are important to get angry about and the things not important to get angry about. It is very interesting in the text, and I'm going to try to clean this text up. We've taken two or three swings at this and never gotten, you know, we've been derailed by a couple of different things. But here's the thing. You would think that the primary virtues of the church were anger and fear. Most churches you go into, people are marked by angry. They're angry about something or somebody, you know. And um, even, I just talked to Pastor Bukes, and one of the interesting things is, you know, the person who sat down next to him, at the, at the district convention, was immediately angry and had to describe why they were angry. It's just so interesting. 
And then fearful, fearful, people are afraid. And so, and yet part of the way you can diagnose it in the church is when people talk about the institution rather than about Jesus. If they talk about our congregation will fail, our district will fail, our synod will fail, our church will fail. You can hear it in Catholics, you can hear it in Lutherans, you can hear it. You can just, just listen when people talk what it is they're trying to defend. And anything less than Jesus himself is an idol. So it's very important. It's very important to try to understand that. And it's very interesting how few times Jesus actually gets angry and he never seems to be fearful. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, even on the cross, he never seems to be afraid. He's quite anxious. He sweats blood, actually. Um, and occasionally gets angry, very occasionally. You know, this is probably as angry as Jesus gets, um, but I think Jesus did quite a nice job of trying to explain to you why that happens. Jesus only gets angry when people are utterly anti him. And so the Pharisees poke him the most, and he's sharpest with them because they kind of have a life that's angry. Although this guy's a pretty good Pharisee in the text for today, and Jesus doesn't actually get angry with him. In fact, Jesus does just the opposite. Jesus makes him an offer you would think that none of us would refuse. Right? Come and be the 13th disciple. It's an amazing offer. And of course, what you find out is that we all have idols. And the truth of it is, that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to accept because the man has to give up both his family and his money. And that's a very, those are two things that are dearest to people. You know, there's a neck and neck with most people. If it's not the money, it's the family. If it's not the family, it's the money. Those are the two things. You know, blood, buy blood, and buy cash, you know. Those are the two things we trust in most of all. And those are the two things we try to preserve, even in the church. Um, so, and Jesus is sort of, now, but Jesus very sympathetically runs against it. As, as they said, Jesus trusted himself to no man because he knew what was in man. So he knows how weak we are, and he knows how easily we have idols. And even today, Jesus talks about how narrow the way is. You know, he talks about that explicitly other places, but even for this guy, he's like, oof, the way is narrow, and it's hard for people to find it, right? <coughs> so uh, what Jesus wants is everybody in, and normally, just in your own family, in your own life, in your own church, people normally are drawn in not by anger, but by love, right? Not by fear, but by calm. So Mark's gospel, Jesus comes, he just moves around, calm from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And as Buke says in his sermon today, he's distinguished by his calmness in the face of evil, in the face of fear, in the face of anger. Very interesting, right? So it's, it's a rare occurrence. Um, so, you know, if you decide you'll never be angry, you'll probably be angry just enough. I would just kind of secondly say, you, if you're going to be angry about anything, uh, you can't just, you can't just, it can't just be this faux righteousness, this faux anger of Jesus, you sort of an imitation of anger. If you're as righteous as Jesus, then you can be as angry as Jesus. I would just suggest to you that you sort of temper your anger down. For every step down, you are less righteous than Jesus. That's zero. Then you should um, bring your anger, ratchet your anger down in equal proportions, and then you'll get it just about right. So occasionally, like when the temple is desecrated, when you're actually selling salvation to people, that's what's going on. They cheat them as they change money. They cheat them as they, as they sell sacrifices. You know, there's a few things to be angry about in life, um, but most of the things you're angry about ain't it, okay? So just kind of just think. That. And in general, I mean, here, I mean, it's a very calm, you know, you're a very happy lot, and it's a very calm place, and it's very, very nice. And even Lent has been... 
accepted, well, I was reading a thing about, um, you know, we've talked a lot about private confession because Pastor Ladick was here and then we've talked about it a little bit and I was, I was you know, most of the, and so you know, I'll just remind you, you know, we're here in confession 5.30 to 6.30 on Wednesdays and we'll hear it a couple hours during Holy Week every day. But I read this week when I had a little bit of time when I was away, I read a little piece on the humiliation of seeing people face to face when you confess and, and how uh, part of what happens it actually happens to this guy in the text today, this face-to-face encounter with Jesus. And you notice that Jesus, and I still sort of offer this to you actually for help, I don't know of any place in the scriptures where Jesus doesn't forgive people face-to-face. So it's always this like, you have to bring your person, right? You have to bring what you are face-to-face with Jesus. Um, you know, it can happen in the general confession, but it clearly happens when you come and you, know, you look somebody in the eye or at least have them at your ear as you look at the cross and say, I'm flipping horrible. You know, to be able to say that, that's a humiliation that we've largely rejected as Lutherans. But that was sort of, um, and, and sometimes for good reason, but it's actually part of what happens in, when you kneel down and say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, is not just everybody is saying it with you. Of course, that's part of it. But part of it is just the humiliation of saying, I'm, really, I'm just really bad at being a human being. I'm just really bad at this. And primarily it shows itself in the church in anger and fear. So, you know, as you move through Lent, and it's been... It's been a very interesting Lent for me, partly because in the past couple of years when we've talked about the disciplines, they were so new, there were either, there was both skepticism and then there was also the sense of, of, of being a novice at things where it didn't really fit. Like, you know, if you think about fasting, we've tried that for a couple of years. It's like, it's like money here now. You know, we've talked about money for so long. You talk about money, people are like, yeah, yeah, you know, and it's sort of natural, right? But we talked about prayer, we talked about fasting. Those things are a little harder and we had to take the edge off. What's interesting is we've kind of moved into the next step where people are actually doing things and they're learning that they fail at it. And because they fail at it doesn't mean they have to cheat at it and they don't feel bad about it. But it has a different sense, which is, of course, to remind you of who you are and who Christ is. That's the whole point of the disciptions, right? The fasting reminds you that you're you know, weaker than you ever thought you were. In the same way, you know, anger and fear. So um, be careful, and be careful about your idols, right? Your idols need to be smashed. And that's really a painful thing to have your idols smashed. I mean, the stuff that you really care about, to have that, you know, if it slips into point number one, then it has to be destroyed. It's really difficult. Um, as, you, as you find from this guy, he's got things that are, but you sh- I just would not be too harsh, because I don't know how many of us could say, yeah, sure, I'll be that guy, even though it's a great, great offer. So flip to the back. I gave you kind of a simpler text. We did a little bit of the Greek bit last time, but this is a little more colloquial. Um, so just, you know, quick read through this, okay? One day, one of the local officials, so if you're a local official, you're a bigger deal. You know, you're either a high-ranking um, Gentile or a high-ranking Jew. Said to him, good teacher, and then, of course, that's loaded, you know? Does he really mean it, or is he being sassy? Is he being sarcastic? We're not quite sure. Is he being reverential? This is like calling somebody, you know, Mr. President, you know, people can say that with a tone that's respectful or they can say it with a tone that's derisive, good teacher. What must I do? And then we did do this the last time, this key word, to deserve. It's actually the Greek word is to earn it. So what can I do, you know? So it's immediately this thing is a trade. And you're all sophisticated enough to know that you've seen that a hundred times before. We did the prodigal son where Jesus eliminated any notion that you can earn anything. You can't do a deal. 
Right? That's part of what Jesus is angry about in the gospel for today, that people are trying to do a deal, or you're suggesting to people you can do a deal so you can ma- manipulate them, right? So you can't, what can I do? And th- but this is very common, even if it's not explicit. What can I do um, to earn eternal life? And Jesus then, this the counter thrust. So why do you call me good? Right? Does he really mean it? Do you not really mean it? No one is good, only God. Are you calling me God, or you're not calling me God? Are you making fun of me, or are you confessing me? What exactly is going on here? Um, it's not completely sure, but what is interesting, so interesting, is that Jesus neither gets angry or fearful. Like Jesus doesn't take offense. I mean, there, you know, there's taking offense and there's giving offense. And for Christians, we should do neither. We shouldn't give offense, right? And we shouldn't take offense. People have bad days. People don't always ask their questions well. You know, sometimes people are distracted. You know, you, sometimes you just, uh, sometimes it's like basketball. It's a no call. You just, just play on, okay? So you, here's what you see in Jesus. Jesus just plays on. It's not clear what's happening, but what's clear is that Jesus loves the man and is really interested that he understand what the kingdom of God looks like. Okay, so Jesus, it's just a play on for Jesus. If the guy's giving offense or even trying to give offense, Jesus apparently doesn't notice. Or if he does, it's a nice, soft way of saying, uh, you know the commandments. No illicit sex, no killing, no stealing, no lying on your father and mother. Now, of course, what you should notice about that is the order is mixed up. Six, right? Um, five, seven, eight, four. Which would tell you then that he's already sized the guy up and he's like a spiritual father. He's like a confessor. He's like a spiritual advisor. Jesus is pastoring this guy. So there's two things. You know, you don't always do them all at the same time. There's two things your pastor is good for. Always good for forgiveness of sins because he just pronounces what Jesus says. But then if you have a good pastor, he's also good as an advisor, which is to give you kind of sage advice. That doesn't always have to come from a pastor. In fact, that's part of the reason you have elders in the congregation, for example. And you have wise women, you know, and men who kind of, kind of, kind of seep toward the top so that they can give kind of sage advice. But Jesus sees something in the guy. So the guy says, you know, what's good? Now, what's very interesting is that Jesus doesn't sort of give them an order. So it's not like a book answer, checking off the list. What's very interesting is that Jesus sort of gives him the things in the order that perhaps he needs the most or most appealing. We don't exactly know, but there's a jumble. But Jesus doesn't do anything without a reason. He says, well, I kept all those as long as I can remember. So maybe you went easy to hard with the guy. Maybe sex isn't a big deal for this guy. It is for a lot of people, but maybe for this guy... You know, maybe sex isn't his weakness. Maybe for this guy, you know, he hasn't killed anybody, he hasn't hurt anybody, and frankly, he tells the truth. What's interesting is later when he says to the guy, you know what you need to give up? Your family and your money. That's interesting because those kind of get to the end of the line. Especially family, father and mother, that's the last one. So maybe he goes easy to hard. You don't exactly know, but you kind of think about that Jesus is sizing the guy up. Now here's the thing. This is the difference between Jesus and me and Jesus and you, which is Jesus has a great advantage, which is Jesus can see people's hearts. Even Adam, I often wonder about Adam. You know, I wonder what it was like. So, for example, I have, a very, I have very easy questions I want to ask Adam when I see him next. Okay? For example, could he walk on water? I'm very interested about that. I'm very interested if he could fly. I'm just very interested about that. Because occasionally you see humans flying, you know, Elijah up to heaven, right? You see people walking on water, Jesus can do that. So can a sinless person walk on water? I'm just curious, you know. 
And I'd be curious what your ability and mine would be. You know, how much could you know about another people if you weren't sinful? We don't realize how ruined we are and how difficult it is to see through ourselves to see other people and be empathetic. We don't, I mean, we have no idea how wrecked we are. So thanks for loving me because I'm wrecked and I'll try to love you right back, right? Because you're wrecked too. But we really have no idea. That's why this is just a foretaste of what's to come. This is why the church is, you know, just a shadow of what will be next. But it's another reason for you not to be fearful and not to be angry. Because you can't, you know, my advice to you would be, if you want to imitate Jesus somewhere, don't pick anger as the first thing you want to imitate, okay? Try love, for example. Or giving people the benefit of the doubt. Or being generous. Or working towards people's healing. Pick something else. Don't, why does everybody pick anger? Why when you ask people, why are you angry? Why do they always cite the text about the temple? As if they were the person who knew exactly what should happen in the temple and by God they'll protect God's honor. Really? How about just like trying to be nice to your kids when they sass off? How about that? Or your friends when they betray you? Or pick something, right? How about, how about imitating Jesus in that? So Jesus has this great advantage that he can see, see hearts. You don't have that advantage and I don't either. And so in, 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 very much, in very much the same way as me being a pastor, you're stuck with believing what people tell you. So one of my, and I always say this to guys who are new pastors, one of my favorite texts in scripture is Jeremiah 20, where Jeremiah is moaning about having been made a pastor. <laughs> yes, you should go read it. And in the New English Bible, it's, it begins by saying, Oh Lord, you have duped me, and I have been your dupe. <laughs> I'm just like, that is such a great translation of that. Oh Lord, you have duped me, and I have been your dupe. Translated as, is, what in the heck? Were you thinking about and was I thinking about when we said we would do this thing? Oh, Lord, you have duped me and I have been your... In the same way, that sort of belongs to you. Oh, Lord, you have duped me and I have been your dupe. Partly what that means is, oh, Lord, people lie to me all the time because I can't see their hearts, right? I work with misinformation all the time. I make mistakes. I read people in the wrong way. Oh, Lord, you have duped me and I have been your dupe. In the same way. The only way you can counteract that is with love. You certainly shouldn't enforce it with anger. Why reinforce your weak position, your bad position, your misguidedness? Why reinforce that? Why curl up in a ball and be afraid as if everything I do will be wrong? In the middle is to follow the way of Jesus. And that's how Jesus is going to solve this, actually. You know this. He's going to say to them, hey, follow me. You can come be number 13. And frankly, at the end of this verse where Peter tries to recover, and you said, you just sort of want to say to Peter, you know, just... Take a big breath and, and, and somebody call for adjournment. You know, there's not, you're not going to get any farther here. Well, anyway, um, you know, part of the argument here is you're not Jesus, I'm not Jesus. But Jesus tells us what to do. But it's not probably the imitation of anger. It's probably the imitation of love, okay? So I've kept this as long as I can remember, which is often how we think about people. You guys who were at the men's retreat, you can, now you can think about the three little movie clips you saw. Go on, my son. You know, go on, my son from the Godfather. Keep going. Let's, let's, let's go. Let's hear what you got. Right? Because if you just thought about it a little longer, you'd be able to actually to think. I had a guy in my first parish, this is a true story, who thought he didn't sin. Was, and it was problematic because, um, one, he told everybody else he didn't sin. He didn't need to come to church then because he didn't sin, although he was kind of a, you know, he, he didn't sin, so he kind of told people that you might be a sinner, but I'm not. And then he didn't need to come to church, although he tried to track people down. He was around enough that people knew him, and they were kind of something between offended and afraid for him that he didn't come to church. So we, what did we do? 
How, do, how would you solve that? You be me, my favorite game, you be me. How would you solve that? What would you do if you had somebody who didn't sin? Yeah, YouTube, that's right. You just, I said, we'll just have somebody follow you around for a week with a video camera. And, just like, and then we'll just all evaluate it together at the end of the week. <laughs> YouTube is the greatest proof of original sin. There is no greater proof. It's the great apology for the fact that people are wrecked. The stuff that's on YouTube, come on. So, I mean, this part of this is just kind of self-awareness. I've done all these things as long as I can remember. Partly what I want to say is you should take that Jerry Lucas memory course. You, know, you should try to remember better, right? Which is what examination is. I've done this as long as I can remember. Well, I remember some stuff, okay? Okay. That's why you get married, so you have a couple of people remembering what you've done. <laughs> I mean, you remembering me, Kirby. I don't mean what... You're fine. <laughs> All right, so Jesus takes him at his word. He believes what the guy tells him. Okay, you know, I mean, if that's what you think, okay, life's good. Um, there's only one thing left to do sell everything. So stuff, sell everything, give it away to the poor, give alms. So, um, you know, sell everything, give it to the poor, give alms. You'll have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. This is a great invitation. Just leave everything behind you and come be disciple number 13. This is going to be great. When Judas does that Judas thing, they won't have to throw, roll the dice in, uh, in Acts. Right? It's all taken care of now. The la this was the last thing the ex official expected to hear. Right? He was very rich and he became terribly sad. So you should just sort of, if you, I'm just, this is just an aside, if you don't want to be very rich and someday become terribly sad, you should tithe and give alms. Because it means you don't have, it, does, it means you don't have your finances under control, right? So I've, I've often told you my advice to my kids. My singular advice to my kids about finance, give 10% to the church and something to the poor, save 20% for your retirement and do whatever you want, right? I mean, it's not that hard. And you should remember that a dollar only spends once. Most people that have financial trouble think you can spend one dollar two times. If you have a dollar, you can spend it one time. That's why it's one dollar. Okay? So if you need help this Lent, that's as much, you know, if you need help this Lent, with, you know, that's, there, that's as much as I'll say about your, give 10% to the church, give something to the poor, only spend one dollar one time, you'll be fine, right? Well, and then what happens is your, your, your possessions don't possess you. And that's just what happens here. So this guy thinks he's got it all. He thinks he possesses his possessions. Guess what? His possessions possess him. He was holding on tight to a lot of things, to a lot of stuff, and he was not about to let them go. Right? This is the constant. I, you could, this is a description of church on Sunday morning. Is this not church on Sunday morning? You come and you're, you're holding on to a lot of things tight. Your presuppositions, right? Your assumptions about other people. Right? Your image of yourself. You're holding on tight. He was holding on tight to a lot of things. Your money, but that's even way down the line. Right? Your sins, your grudges, your fears, your angers. You're holding on tight to a lot of things. What happens when you come to church? What's, what's going on in there? I'm trying to get you to open your hands. Have you ever noticed this is the reason the pastor prays with his hands open? There's a classic stance for prayer is that you pray, you pray with your hands open. Nothing to offer and everything to gain. That's why you pray like this. That's why the pastor prays this way. 
often you see it reinterpreted, especially in Pentecostal pews, as people doing all kinds of this and all kinds of this, and <laughs> occasionally like this at a Katy Perry concert. But, um, <laughs> but Lord's broke us out of that, okay? So, uh, so here's the thing. Um, because that, when it starts to be like that, it's completely inverted. Then it becomes all about what I'm given to God. So it's very interesting. What began as the classic early church stance of prayer, like this, which was, I bring nothing, so I've got nothing to make a deal with, but I stand and wait for my hands to be filled to overflowing, became bastardized, especially in the American church, as, hey, I've got all this stuff to give to God, which is the way of the Pharisee. Isn't that interesting? He had many things, and he held on to his things really tightly. Right? He was holding on tight to a lot of things, and he was not about to let them go. When you kneel down today and you say, and I'm a poor, miserable sinner, the things I've done, the things I haven't done, what's happening is, is trying to loosen your grip. Trying to loosen your grip on stuff that you should let go of. Right? Trying to get your hands open so that they'd be useful. These, you know, these kinds of hands aren't very useful for anything but having a fist fight. Right? These kind of hands are open for all sorts of things from, you know, surgery to writing a check to bringing food to the homeless. Okay? Seeing his reaction, right, Jesus says, do you have any idea how difficult it is? It, the you becomes plural at this point. It doesn't ring in English, but in Greek, the you. Be- so he starts by going face to face with this guy, and he gives him all he's got. Unfortunately, there are always other people around. It's hard to do pastoral care in public, but this is the guy came in public, so you got to work with what you got. The, the subject changes from sing, single to plural here. So what happens is, verse 24, is that now Jesus is going to talk to everybody around, and through Scripture, he's going to talk to all of you. So basically he says to you now, you've seen this story, right? Do you all have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all, living in Wheaton, you have it all, really? What is it that you don't have? There's very little that you don't have that I don't have. Very, very little. When you're moping about what you don't have, you know, we should... Uh, I used to have a professor who would... Students who were very privileged would complain about being depressed and overworked. He would say, I'll take you to the psych ward. Let's go take a walk. And I don't know if you've ever been on a, on a lockdown ward, but um, it changes your view of what the rest of the world really looks like. It changes your view of your own view, starting with... When you go behind, when you, once you go in, they lock the door and you can't get out. That changes your view of the world. And people who are in all shades of reality, that changes your view of the world. And people who have nothing, sometimes not shoes or shoelaces, right? They certainly don't have their own bed and they have food only when somebody else gives them food. Right? So, I mean, just sort of, it helps you reflect. So, um, seeing his reaction, do you have any idea how, it is, how difficult it is? So there's no point in getting angry at people because it's difficult for them, okay? For people who have it all to enter God's kingdom, I'd say it's easier to thread a camel through a needle's eye than to get a rich person into the kingdom of God. And you know that this has often been explained. There used to be in a, you know, in walls, city walls, village walls, they often used to build a gate with a hump. Uh, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know the gates are built in different widths and heights depending on what they wanted to let through, or any walled city. It could be anywhere in Germany. But there, sometimes in the Middle East, they build a, 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 a gate with a curved top, 
because you've seen you've seen camels and that you can get a camel to go on their knees, but they have a hump in the middle. So you gotta you gotta account for the hump and everything that piled on the hump, and you could sort of get the camels to go through on their knees, right? So that's not easy to get a camel to do. Camels are they're bad. They're bad animals. <laughs> they not only kick you like a horse, they spit at you. You know, you can they. That's not, you know. So there you go. Um, you know, so, I mean, sometimes people say, well, you know, Jesus is sort of, well, you know, that's not easy, but also just let, just let the natural, just let the natural sense of it. It's very, it's very difficult to, for this to happen. Now, you should begin to think about um, anytime people talk about difficulty in Scripture, right? And what comes to mind, what, what text comes to mind as soon as people say that Jesus can't do things? Like, you know, Jesus can't put his body and blood in the sacrament. Or Jesus can't save a rich man. What text comes to mind? What's the best text for that? Anybody got an idea? So Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Which is different from Zechariah saying to the angel, how am I going to do this? Which is the reason Mary gets pregnant and Zechariah gets dumb, mute, can't speak. Because Zechariah talks about himself, John the baptizer's father, remember? He talks about himself saying, like this guy, how am I going to get this done? How is this? How? And Mary, complete servant, says, that's interesting. How are you going to do that? Right? Since I'm not married and I'm a virgin, how's that going to happen? Right? So interesting, very same question from Jesus' birth comes out of Jesus' own mouth. You know, how's that going to happen? Right? Who has any chance at all? They asked him. No chance at all, Jesus said. So, no chance at all if you're going to make a deal. No chance at all if you're going to bring your hands like this. No chance at all if you want to be in the temple and try to buy the best thing so you can show off and be the best first one in the line to be saved. No chance at all, says Jesus, if you can pull it off by yourself. And that, of course, is the key. Right? No chance at all if you think you can do it by yourself. Every chance in the world if you trust in God to do it. And that, of course, is the great summary. And this is what Lutherans have always picked up on. God always makes the first move. God does it to you. God gives it to you as a gift. God resurrects you. God nourishes you. God loves you. God energizes you by his Holy Spirit. God leads you forward. God, 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 God. So, and I've told you this before, when you find yourself, you know, angry, frustrated, depressed. What always happens is that people talk about themselves. If you, if you talk to people who are angry, if you talk to people who are frustrated, if you talk to people who are depressed, if you sit down and listen to them, if you just let them go, they will normally talk about themselves for as long as you let them go. I this and I that and I this and I that and they did to me and I this and I that. The whole trick then, the easiest way to flip things around is to be a Christian, which is to say to talk about the baby Jesus. So sometimes I just say to people, just for the next 30 days, don't start any sentence with I. I mean, there's still 30 days of Lent left. You can try this. You know how difficult it is not to talk about yourself? Next time you write a letter, just look how you, look how you write. See if it starts I, blah, 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 and I, blah, 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 blah. So I demand, blah, 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 and I give you 30 days to come through with this. I wish you only the best, which is a way of saying, with all due respect, which means people are about to disrespect you, right? So, um, you know, just, just listen how often people talk about themselves. The whole church, the whole point of the church, the whole point of the liturgy is not to talk about yourself. 
It's talking about what God is doing to you, which is exactly what's happening here. This is not, see, we didn't make this up as we're going along. This is the cure. If you want the cure for clinging on to your things too tightly, right? If you want to know what it means to enter the kingdom of God, the answer is always the same. The answer is that Jesus does it to you. So God comes to Adam. God comes to Abraham. God comes to Moses. God comes to David. God comes to the baptizer. God even comes to Jesus in Gethsemane, right? The story of Scripture is the story of Jesus making the first move. And as long as you talk about yourself, which is just another way of clinging to your stuff, and to your family and your things and your status very tightly, as long as your hands are like this, right? As long as they're like this, it's going to be very difficult to get you into the kingdom of heaven. But when your hands are like this, as Jesus says, um, no chance at all if you can pull it off by yourself, every chance in the world if God does it. And even trust in God, you know, as the, as the Catechism says, third article of the Catechism, I believe that I can't believe. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, might me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the true faith. So even trust is a gift from God. So there's nothing that God didn't do to you. So when people say, you know, I'm, I worry that I don't believe in God, you know, I often say to them just to get their attention, it doesn't matter, God believes in you. If I worry that I don't love God, you know, God loves you. You know, it's all about what God does. It's frankly not about what you do until we get to budget time. Okay. <laughs> Just checking to see if you're paying attention, okay? I just check it, because sometimes the Zellers, they, they're so in love, they start to talk to each other over here in the corner. I can hear them talking. I mean, she could end up on Broadway today. You don't know where she could end up. Zeller's a romantic guy. You know he surprised his wife with, like, with a trip with tickets to Broadway, hotel. How many kids do you have now, nine, ten? How many kids you got? You got somebody to take care of all your kids, and you took your wife on a date to New York City. You're like my new model. It's like Jesus and then you. I mean, I just want to be like, I mean, if I can't be like Jesus, I want to be like you. I'm not kidding you. You are a lucky woman. You, the rest of you tell her later how lucky she is, okay? Okay, we need to move on here, okay? Because we don't ride that horse too far, okay? Because that could go badly for all of us. Then, then here's the thing. Peter is always good for being you and me. Peter tried to regain the initiative. Isn't that great? So Jesus took control of the... This has always happened. There's this big mess, and then somebody screws it up, and it gets worse, and then Jesus sort of calms things down, and then Peter is always good for kind of stirring it up again. Did you have a brother or sister like this? You think you just, like you think you just got it calmed down? You think it's just going to be okay, and then what happens? That's right. So Peter tried to regain the initiative. Initiative is about, you know, I'm in charge. Hey, we left everything and followed you, didn't we? Didn't we do that? Are we good kids? You're good kids. <laughs> favorites, right? There's always favorites in the family, right? Now, this is a thing. This will get your... It's, it's, Jesus has been so Lutheran so far. And now for you Lutherans, it's about to get dicey. Yes, said Jesus. Look at this. And you won't regret it. What? Now just watch. No one who was sacrificed, and now he tells you what the guy's problem is, right? Who was sacrificed. He tells you what the guy's idols are. Home, spouse, brothers, sisters, parents, children. So, and we, we talked about this a little bit, that money and family went together in the Middle East, right? Money and family go together. So basically what Jesus said, you got this great package, your life is really great, and you think you're really great, 
which is true, except that you think the your own greatness is going to save you, which is false. It's a really simple problem. Right? You should cling to stuff. You should cling to what Jesus has given you. You should cling to your family. You should cling to your usefulness in the community. You should cling to all those things, but as a gift, not as a work. Okay? But now look at this. This is where Lutherans always want to take the last verse off, but you have to say this. No one who sacrificed, nobody who came with open hands, nobody who came with open hands will lose out. Okay. And so, you know, uh, as I used to say, you know, in every salary discussion throughout most of my career, uh, you know, the budget chair would turn to me and say, you'll get your reward in heaven. That was one of the first words Eifer ever told me, which was translated to, could you get me a raise? So, um, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I'll work on that for you. But, you know, it will all come back multiplied many times over. Look at this. In your lifetime. Hmm. All right, now here's the thing, though. Here's the thing you need to be careful about. It came as this big package. It came as this package of status plus family plus church plus money plus relationships plus honor plus all the other things that go with being a Pharisee and a local leader. In your own life, you just have to be extraordinarily careful that you think, you know, if you give 10%, then the Lord's going to give you a raise. Or if you do a good work that the Lord will, in some, you know, karmaistic way, return you, uh, return to you in a different way. I can tell you in my own life, one of the ways the Lord has blessed us, when things have been most difficult for us, the Lord has often blessed my children. It's the weirdest thing. Like when things have been worse for Kirby and I in different, in different venues, um, the way the Lord has made it up to us is often to bless our children. Now, in some ways, if you gave us a choice whether we'd like to have our children blessed or us blessed, we would always choose our children. So, in some ways, the Lord kind of outsmarted us, right? But here, just think more broadly now. Partly what might happen is, <laughs> sorry, but if you're really faithful, I might get blessed because I'm part of your family. Well, you're not laughing or embracing this, but really, this is good for you. <laughs> like, if you do a good job at work, I might get a raise. Come on, can't we all see the advantage in this? <laughs> see, isn't this weird? Like, so, so part of the thing is, is you're going to see it many times over in this life, but you may not see it personally or individually. You may see it collectively, familially, even ecclesiastically. You may see it in terms of the church. So here's the thing. You work and work and work and work. You're happy. You're not angry. You're faithful, you're not fearful. You're generous, you're not a miser. You come to the Eucharist, and guess what? Maybe your life doesn't change. Maybe your life even gets a little bit worse. But maybe everybody else's life around you gets better. Right? I mean, the most poignant way of this is when somebody dies in the faith, when somebody has what the church calls a blessed death. So you're suffering like crazy, and you die faithfully, what happens? Everybody around you goes, that was really fantastic. It blesses everybody around you. So this is not a tit for tat. It's not quid pro quo, right? This is wherever you happen to be, and you happen to be in the church, and these are your family people, because they all have the same name that they got at baptism, and they all have the same blood, not the blood in your veins. That's not what matters. What matters is you all bear the body and blood of Christ in your body, right? That's what matters. So what may happen is you may go through your whole life being faithful and somebody else may get the blessing of it. And you've got to get good with that. 
because that's the way the Lord is going to do it. And besides that, you're not going to even live to 100 years old. You may not live to 50. And that's a very short time given how long the kingdom of God lasts. So you can only see, see some part of it is this, this guy's a really bright guy, but he doesn't see kind of the most basic, basic things. That it's not all about him. That's the idol. The great idol is always self. And if not self, it's broad self, self and family. Self and family and things. Myself, my family, my things. Right? And so, you know, the ability, what Jesus is trying to do is get him to loosen his grip and to see that he's been gifted, belongs to this much broader thing. And because of that, other people are going to be blessed. It will come back to him multiplied many times in your lifetime and then the bonus of eternal life. I mean, that's just flipping genius. I mean, that's the reason to join the church. It's also a reason for you to be kind. Not because you may get something back, because, you know, I do something and you get blessed. You get blessed. You, this, this table's good over here, and then suddenly these people over here get blessed. And that's partly what it is to be family. You know, you know that that's what it is to be family. All right? Most of that's in the outline somewhere. So I promise not to bring it back again next week. All right, love you. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hey, prayers for healing and consolation with Pastor Nelson in the back after the late service, just in case you're interested or want to support those who come along.